0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, and who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: We are at the end of chapter seven of the Gospel of John and as well, Jesus is on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in our passage today is considered to be one of the wondrous invitations that our Savior gives to anyone, which is that if you drink the living water, you will never be thirsty again. What I'd like to do is to cover three points from this passage. First, the thirst for living water in verse 37. Second, the obstacles to living water in verse 37 and 40 through 40, uh, 52. And then third, the promise of living water in verses 38 through 39 and first the thirst of living water Jesus said on the la- uh, John said on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink when Jesus uses the word if it is a conditional statement but it's it sort of has an a, a assumptive value to it meaning he assumes thirst he assumes that everyone thirsts. So just like the human body, so too our souls thirst. And it's said that the human body can go approximately anywhere from 50 to 70 days without food. But without water, probably about three days, give or take a few, couple of days. V- very vastly different picture. So the assumption is that everyone will be thirsty. And the question remains, do you realize you are thirsty? I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Jonathan Gerrish and Ellen Chung. On August 15th, 2021, they and their daughter and their dog went for a hike in Sierra National Forest. At the parking lot, it was 75 degrees. And if you've ever gone hiking, and especially in the summertime, you know that you should always take water. They did, but they only took one bottle of an 85-ounce of water for their whole family. And what they didn't realize is that as they're making their ascent throughout the Sierra National Forest, uh, by the time they hit the peak, it was anywhere from 100 to 109 degrees. They had hiked four miles. Eventually, they were found dead. All of them had died due to dehydration and heat exhaustion. You know the thing is that it's thought that they probably were dehydrated within the first two miles of their hike. And by that point, they were so disoriented that they lost their way, and they were essentially dying of thirst without realizing it. When I hear their story, I think of Jesus' words in John 30, uh, John chapter seven, verse 37. That is to say that you can die of thirst without realizing you're dying of thirst. And spiritually, there are those who know they are dying of thirst and then run to Christ for living water. And then there are those who don't even realize, like these hikers, that they are dying of thirst. Everything is going well. And so there's no sense of desperation or need. And maybe that's your life. Maybe it is your life this week if you really reflect on this past week or month or year, do you realize that you've been empowering your life by your own strength, your own willpower? And you find that actually your joy is being sapped away, your strength dissipating, and slowly but surely there's a slow hardness of heart, a lack of peace. If you feel that, just as a person who is dehydrating goes through all sorts of physiological changes and experiences, dizziness, dry mouth, uh, a lethargy, so too spiritually, if you have not run to Christ, do not be surprised when you find God's word empty, or when you have no heart's desire to look to him. There's no tenderness of soul. You have to see that you actually have a need You are thirsty. I think Charles Spurgeon rightly says, thirst is a painful need, an emptiness, a salutary warning that something very important is wanted. I don't know if you realize this, but being thirsty is a gift. It's actually something that your body emotes that says, you need to drink water now. and. I think some of you probably don't drink enough water. Some maybe drink too much water. But that need for that reflex of thirst is an incredible blessing. And so if we don't have this pain of emptiness, as Charles Spurgeon notes, then we're not really leading and considering this warning for our souls. I love how Laura Hillenbrand describes Louis Zamperini in uh, Unbroken of his account on the lifeboat when he was in the middle of the ocean, stuck after his plane had crashed. She writes, on the third day without water, a smudge appeared on the horizon. It grew darkened, billowed over the rafts, and litted the sun. Down came the rain. The men threw back their heads, spilled their bodies back, spread their arms, and opened their mouths. The rain fell on their chests, lips, faces, tongues. It soothed their skin, washed the salt and sweat and fuel from their pores, slid down their throats, fed their bodies. It was a sensory explosion. I love those last words. It's exactly what Jesus promises us here in verse 37 but not just one outpouring. He promises us an eternity of living water, a waterfall of God's grace, and it will be more deeply satisfying and infinitely greater, a a sensory explosion that will make anything we experience, any pleasure we experience in this world, far less. So food, your most delectable, delightful foods, sex, and all of its intentional pictures of what it is to ultimately have our love of Christ. But that won't compare. Think of your best vacation, the birth of your child, any type of pleasure that you've had in this world. All of those are but to imitate an eternal pleasure, an eternal living water, a sensory explosion. But there are obstacles, obstacles that actually keep us from experiencing this type of refreshing. The first is what I would call the obstacle of mirage. Surely this is what keeps us from living water. Imagine being lost in the Saharan desert And you're on your second day without water. And as you're trekking along, barely making it, your your tongue is just glued to the roof of your mouth. And suddenly, you look out and you see palm trees. And you see a big pool of water. And so you start running with all the little bit of strength that you have left. You're running over the sand dunes. You know, just with the wind blowing against you, you're running to that to that oasis and you run and you dive your head into the water. But it is a mirage. And because it's a mirage, you're just eating sand. But you're so hallucinogenic that you actually think it's water. And so you're swallowing, gulping down sand into your gut, eventually to your death. My friends, This is where we are when we believe something else satisfies our soul other than Jesus. It is a spiritual mirage. Again, look at Jesus' three verbs in verse 37. Thirst, come, drink. You have to first realize you're thirsty, then you come, you run to Jesus, and then you drink. But how often do we say to Jesus, I don't, I don't wanna drink your water, Jesus. Actually, I think I'm gonna try this water over here. And so we throw our head into the sand, the, the career. We think, if I can, well, I'll follow you later. If we were a bunch of college students, and I know there are some students here, there were, if we were a college ministry, I, you know, I was a college pastor for a while, one of the things I would so often talk about is, you know, I know you think you need to study all day and maybe not even decide, you know, my exams are on Monday, and so I need to study all day Sunday in order to get an A. But that type of thinking is nothing more than throwing your head in the sand. You think that it actually will satisfy you, and it's possible you get an A. But that mentality starts flowing into life. So from college to working in your first job, you think, I don't need to spend time with the Lord. I need to get going my career to advance, to make it, to be someone significant. And then you meet somebody, and it's all about that person. And anyone who has ever been in a relationship knows how, regardless of how much you say, Christ first, over her, over him, but the temptation is too strong. You actually love the person more than Christ. And that heart in a marriage, it slowly fades and you begin to see that it's not self-sustaining. It's never soul satisfying. Yes, these are all gifts, good gifts. Everything that we get to enjoy is a good gift of the Lord. Water is a good gift of the Lord, but it's not meant to be in and of itself satisfying. It's the giver of the gift that is always satisfying. If you find that once you are married, your greatest passion is to make your wife happy, your husband happy, your children happy, you will not be happy. You will find that it will be lacking. At the very least, you will be just simply passing the time, slowly becoming distant roommates, and it's because you're making the end goal your spouse, your career, your child, and the cycle just keeps on going. And when that happens, you're just never satisfied because that's not how God intended it to be. He's given you everything to enjoy, but the way you enjoy is you enjoy him. And the promise is that when you enjoy him, you will enjoy these things through him. And so you'll never worship the gift. You will always worship the giver of the gift. Anything less than that is eating sand. And eating sand is deadly to your soul. I appreciate how Paul Tripp describes this heart. You see it, it, uh, it in the wines of a little boy, you see it in the entitlement of the teenager. You see it in the needless argument of the married couple over something unimportant. And you see it in the bitterness of the old man. Notice all the stages of life are covered there. None of us has escaped this disease. It infects all of our hearts. It is the reason for so much of the brokenness, angst, and pain of the human community. What is this thing that kidnaps us all? It is the selfishness of sin. The idol of idols really is the idol of self. We make it all about us. We put ourselves in the center of the story. There is no stage of life where if you make the ultimate pursuit something other than Christ where you will not be sorely disappointed eventually. Maybe in the moment there's pleasure, but it's always fleeting. And eventually you come to realize that the reason why it is so empty is because it's all about you. It's all about me and I cannot satisfy myself. I just don't have the willpower, strength, commitment. And so we need something far more. Ecclesiastes describes this drinking of the mirage as a vanity of vanities chasing after the wind. And this keeps us from true soul satisfying living water. Actually, if you really want to enjoy life, Enjoy Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, our God is not a miserly God. He doesn't just say, I want your misery. He actually wants your ultimate good. But he needs you to trust him in his word that that actually is the case. And until you trust him and surrender everything, surrender it all you'll never experience this life-giving water. It is hard to surrender everything. Think of this week. Is there anything this week that kept you from surrendering, surrendering everything? Your wishes, dreams, your heart, your pleasures, your hopes. The second obstacle to living water is pride. We see this especially in verses 40 through 49. I'm going to read this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In the Pharisees, we see perhaps the greatest impediment to drinking living water, pride. Pride says that water, (sighs) what is water? It's just a poor man's drink. Might as well drink wine, the finest of wines, a nice scotch, beer, soda, juice, not water. Who needs water? For the Jewish leaders, they believed that they were the most faithful, obedient to God, that they were closer to him than anyone else. And the reason was because they knew the Bible, scripture, and they memorized it. They gave to the poor. They were the ones who answered all the questions. They were the, uh, the standards to morality and ethics and they had the works to prove it. But they knew about God without necessarily knowing him. And it is possible to know a lot about God than it is to actually know him. There's a parable that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collectors that reminds us of this the tax collector, he spends his whole time praying and saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he just is so downcast. He surrenders everything and says, there is nothing good in me. No, I I have nothing left. You know, when Jesus describes this man as he comes and leaves the temple, he describes him as walking away justified because he recognizes that the only hope he has is God himself. The Pharisee, on the other hand, says, well, I'm, I give this, I read this scripture, I, I'm a teacher of the law, I do all these things, I tithe, I give to the poor, and also, i am thankfully, I'm not as much of a sinner as that guy. In fact, I'm not a sinner at all. That guy's the real sinner and points to the tax collector. And that man will never drink from living water because their pride is so great. And that's exactly the same heart as these people that we see in John chapter 7. They're questioning Jesus. They're skeptical. You know what it is? Is that they assume they know it already. Look at what they're saying. They're saying, did you know that the Messiah is not from Nazareth, from Galilee? So Nazareth is a town in Galilee in the northern region. And it's said in scripture that the Messiah does not come from there, but from the south in from bethlehem we're about to enter into the advent season you know there's many songs that we sing about bethlehem the old little town of bethlehem we might sing that without even thinking that is really important because it says the savior comes from there but here's the problem is that these people were so proud that they had assumed they knew exactly where jesus was from now luke when he's recording the story and matthew of where Jesus is from, they had to go and probably go and go talk to people, do the legwork of saying, is Jesus, this carpenter's son, is he actually from Bethlehem? And he probably had to figure it all out and historically find out, and it took labor. But for these people, they don't care about the truth, they assume the truth. And the assumption is, he's not from Bethlehem, so therefore he's not the Messiah, he's not the savior their pride leads to a blindness spiritual blindness a hard-heartedness and a laziness it's this idea that we assume there is every we know everything there is to know about jesus now for some of us we've been going to church for a long time you know a lot of the stories and maybe you've heard this before and how easy it is to say i've heard this before You say the same thing over and over again. You say the same stories. But for the person who reads the Bible and reads, say, the Gospel of John, and maybe you've read it twice, and then you think, I know all this, and so you find the Bible boring. You find what Jesus says, what he teaches, who he is as not so significant anymore. Anyone ever experienced that? You open the Bible and you don't find it interesting? But then there are some who have read the Bible, perhaps the Gospel of John, a hundred times. And as you're reading for the hundred first time, you're just amazed by what the Lord is showing you. What is the difference? One person can read the same text a thousand times and still find this incredible treasure. And the other person reads it twice and says, this is boring, I've already read it. I know all this. The answer is pride. One is, I know there everything there is to know and so yeah I'm not uh, there's nothing for me here the other person says I am a sinner I have a great savior and so when they open scripture they see how it's just literally like a sword cutting to their soul and they see once again how they're being reminded of who Christ is and what he has done for them the thirst is so often being covered up pride and that pride is so deadly to your soul it is so dangerous and if you don't realize it it will kill you some of you might have heard the story of Philip Krasik Philip Krasik married father of two kids he was an ultra marathoner meaning he ran possibly anywhere up to 100 miles at one shot sometimes 60 to 100 He was an avid trail runner and a few years ago on July 10th, he told his wife that he would run, he'd be on a running trail on the Pleasanton Ridge. I know some of you have perhaps hiked that ridge. He said he'd be back in an hour. On that particular day, and I remember when this happened, it was a summer day, the temperature reached 106 degrees. He didn't return back and there was a long search and after the search, He was found under a shady tree ruled as death by dehydration. Outside Magazine commented on Philip Krasik's death and I find it to be so applicable to our passage. This is what it said. Athletes are among those most at risk of heat stroke. And research involving marathoners has shown that the fitter you are, the more danger you face. The harder runners push, the more their bodies overheat. And in highly trained athletes and soldiers, the symptoms of going over the line usually aren't obvious. I mean, listen to what that's saying. The most fittest, because of their sense of, I got this, I'm fit, are the most in danger. Spiritually, it is exactly the same. If you are wealthy, If you are gifted, if you are healthy, if you are strong, if your family looks great, if everything's going well, if you are successful, if you are smart and intelligent, that is when pride seeps in so deeply. And when you have that pride, you feel as though you don't need water. You can do it yourself. You've spent your whole life building up a resume, an academic record a bank account, a skill set, and you said, I don't need anything other than what I have to bring. And I tell you that person is in danger of losing their soul. My friends, all of us are dying of thirst. Everyone, from the littlest of kids to the oldest of people. Some of us have actually realized this and so therefore, we desperately run to him. We run to Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do this. And you know, we come in all different backgrounds and shapes and sizes, and we run and we say, Lord, I know I've achieved all this, but it's meaningless. Like the apostle Paul in Philippians three, it's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. But some of us are like Philip Krasick. We say, I don't need water when I go on this run. I don't need, I can, I've trained my whole life. I'm strong enough. And that person is in danger of losing everything. You have a beautiful family. In our church, we have beautiful families. I look around, I see beautiful people. I really do. We have successful people. We have smart people. We have people who are talented, but we spend our whole life working hard to get that bonus so that I can actually pay for my kids' college education, so I can pay for their schooling in high school and college, and then so I can pay for their wedding. And so it'll be a really awesome wedding for put on Wedding Magazine. I don't know if there's a wedding magazine, you know, and I just want, I'm living, you're living. And then finally, You're working so hard so you can retire early. Those two words, retire early, so that we can buy a really much larger home in another state to take our cash out on our equity and then go and move to somewhere where there's no state income tax. And we can play golf all day, fish all day, hunt all day. And then that's it. We're over. That is the spiritual ultra marathoner. You are dying. You are pushing yourself because you feel like you can, but you know what? You don't realize you're overheating. And you don't know it until it is too late. And when you see the Lord and you say, but I did this, Lord, I did that for you. And he'll say, that's, that's been all for yourself. You're just lying to yourself. Jesus says in our passage today that there is something better for you, something that will satisfy you, not for a moment, but forever. There's a promise of living water in verses 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified now, this is not an empty promise that Jesus gives everything else is empty you now uh, I'm speaking to the athletes amongst us some of you played high school sports when you were you know when you were in those long ago years And I talked earlier last week or a couple of weeks ago about the fact that if you still have trophies from that time, I feel sorry for you, (laughs) especially if they're prominently in your living room. If I go to your house, will I see your house, high school? I hope. Do not. Let me see your high school trophies. (laughs) But, you know, we have high schoolers who are doing athletics now. So those who have your high school trophies, you need to talk to the high schoolers and show them your trophies and say, guys, this is a bunch of plastic. It really doesn't mean that much. Ladies, girls, a bunch of plastic, a bunch of ribbons, and that's it. But we all have trophies. We all have something that we say, I am special because of this trophy. When I was, I shared this, when I was in kindergarten, I got second honors. I cut out of the line so I didn't get first honors. And my mom has all of my awards, including that one. (laughs) And I look at it, I just laugh, and I think, you know, I'm sure when she got it, I don't know if she was proud. She was probably disappointed because it wasn't first. (laughs) But she has all my honors, and they're a bunch of pieces of paper. They're meaningless. That's what we're living for when we don't live for the Lord, when we don't drink of his living water. But the promise is that He promises you, I will not let you down. Come to me. Come drink from me. Jesus promises when you believe in him, forever you will be satisfied in your soul. If you're searching for significance, meaning, do not think you're going to find it in a career or in friendships or having a girlfriend or a boyfriend or in a husband or a wife, it just won't happen. You will never have to prove yourself if you are in Christ because you are special, you are significant. The promise is great. And the way that we know this is true is this incredible verse that is spoken that Jesus speaks of that he quotes. Out of his heart will flow rivers of water. And if you have your Bible, you can see it's actually in a quotation. It's actually in a quotation, as the scripture has said. Now, the thing is, this verse is quoted in many different parts of the Old Testament. All of them touch on one specific idea in the Old Testament, and it was the idea of when the people of Israel walking through the desert. They're in the latter part of the wilderness, and I told you, you can only go for about three days without water, especially in the heat. They don't have water. I mean, they're trying to feed and have water for hundreds of thousands of people. And so to have that much water, it takes a a big water source to do that. So they're in this desert, they don't have water, they're getting closer to the promised land. And so what do they start doing? They start complaining. And frankly, I I probably would complain too. You know, it's hard walking around in the desert without water. But what they start doing is they complain against Moses and they say, Moses, why did you take us here? We were happy in Egypt. Why did you bring us? And Moses, in turn, he turns to God and God says, Moses, I want you to take your staff and I want you to hit the rock at Meribah. I want you to hit it once and water is going to flow. But instead, Moses hits the rock twice. Because he hits it twice, it's God says, you did not obey me. Therefore, you will not enter the promised land. You, Moses. Now think about, I always read that passage and think, boy, God is so harsh there. Like he's led, Moses has led the people of Israel for 40 years and they are not an easy people to lead. And so he's leading them and he, for that one act, he's not allowed to take them into the promised land. He can see it. God allows him to look over and see it, but then he dies. The thing about what Moses was doing is out of his anger and unbelief. You know, his anger was towards the people, but probably his anger was towards God. And he was saying, God, why did you put me here? Why do I have to deal with these people? And so he hits the thing twice. God knows his heart, and that's why he was punished for it. But the problem with the people of Israel is that they were grumbling They were complaining. Now, this verse, that passage, this verse probably comes from Nehemiah, which is thinking back to Moses. So Nehemiah is bringing the people back from Babylon back to Israel, rebuilding the walls, and things aren't going so well, and so people are probably complaining again. And they're angry at God and saying, why did you judge us? And so there's so much complaining, criticism. There's no faith, no trust in God, And in the midst of it, God says, I'm still going to give you water. That's not my heart. If someone treats me like that, I'm saying, all right, forget it then. I'm not giving you water. But God says, I'm still going to give you water. Now look at how God gives this water for them to survive, to live forever and ever. Out of his heart will flow water rivers of living water. Do you know how God makes this come to pass? John 1934 tells us how. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. It's said that by uh, physicians who have studied this passage have thought that there are two possibilities as to what this meant, that when the Roman soldier and down below takes his spear, pierces his side. The spear tip is either puncturing an area around the lungs where water has filled up or puncturing his heart where there's been some sort of rupture of the heart where water has gone into the heart. And so therefore, as the spear is being pierced, the heart flows out water. I'm going to believe the first one, I mean the, the one with the heart meaning that when Jesus is saying this, he knows fully that it's about himself. The means by which God in the midst of a people who are turning to every other way of finding satisfaction, and it's not in him, of trust, and it's not in God. God doesn't say, forget you all. He says, I'm gonna send my son. This is the only way that people can come to me but it's going to be at great cost. My son would be pierced. Nothing would stop Jesus from fulfilling his promise to provide you living water. You just have to be desperate enough to see it. Some of us are so apathetic and we've fallen into the the patterns of this world and believe that something or someone deeply satisfies us but it never does. It's always empty. Jesus gave everything so that you can have your life satisfied forever. You have to see when he was on the cross, when he said, I thirst, it was so that you would never be thirsty again and it would be his shed blood that would free you from that thirst. Philip Bliss writes so well, hallelujah, what a savior. Hope you place your hope and trust in him. Drink from this savior. Every Sunday we do this at this table. We drink of the savior, his blood. May you never forget he was pierced for you. I hope we have desperate people in this room. Know you are thirsty. Know you are dying of thirst. Know that Christ shed his blood. Water flowed from his heart so you will never be thirsty again. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, it is a great kindness and mercy that you have lavished on us, that you have shown us through your shed blood and the piercing of your side into your heart so that water would flow. And Lord, I pray for those who perhaps do not realize they are dying of thirst. They've looked at all sorts of other sources of quenching their thirst. It might work for a moment, but in the end, it will not last. May we turn to Christ. May we run to you, O Lord. Lord, I pray for the hard-hearted, the proud, those who believe that they already know you. They know enough of you they've surrendered 60% of themselves. Lord, they're in a dangerous place. We ask, oh God, that you would turn their eyes to you. And like the tax collector crying out and saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Lord, we just pray that you would be, um, you'd be convicting us Help us to drink from this wellspring of water that is the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.